wonderful to be together. It's a great time that we have been enjoying together as we walk through uh, God's revelation of Himself through the inspiration of Dr. Luke as he writes to us in his gospel, the accurate account of what we have been learning about and concerning really the ministry of Jesus Christ. We we find ourselves here in chapter 3, and I want to focus our attention on verses 15 to 17 this morning, um, which really is part of a larger narrative that we have been looking at that began in chapter 3, verse 1, in the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He is that one that was foretold in times past. He was announced by God through the Old Testament prophets, and he was announced to the parents of John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth, by the angel Gabriel, who God had dispatched for that very purpose. And he would come and prepare the way for the receiving of the Messiah. He would come and he would preach the message of God. And so that is what the people were hearing. He, he was preparing their hearts for the receiving of God, Messiah, of God's Son. He was then a tilling of the soil kind of ministry. He was tilling the soil. He was preparing the way. He was causing people to think about things that maybe they had not thought about in quite some time by their own neglect, by their own uh, lack of hearing it taught to them by their own forgetfulness over the history of their life. They had been needful of this preparation, and it had been prophesied in the past, and it was therefore then announced to his parents that he would be great in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Gabriel said where he would be living and what he would be like, and his life would certainly be by his description of his own clothing and what he ate and where he lived, that he would be distinct from all of those around him, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and that he would turn back many to the Lord their God. So John was all intents and purposes, unlike any who had come before him. He was a great prophet. But how was all of that going to happen? How was all of that going to take place when John came on the scene? How would many be turned back to the Lord their God? Well, the Scriptures declare for us that it would happen through God's predetermined means for how that happens, and that is through the preaching of the message of God. Preaching of the message of God was how God was going to till the soil of the hearts of men in order to draw them back to Himself. That is simply to say that it would happen by means of the power of the Word of God as God worked in the hearts of people. This is how it always takes place. This is how salvation happens. This is, this is always how it happens. There is no other way for it to happen. It is God working in the hearts of men through the 
proclamation of his word. This is what the word declares. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. They, they hear the Word of God, and that Word of God works in their mind and their heart, and their heart hears that as God works, and they believe. God's message is a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a message of faith. It's a message to believe in what God declares concerning His Messiah. Therefore, it's a message about sin, a message about the nature of man and who he is by his very character and his fallenness and what God requires for man to be in his presence. It is a message that, when truly believed, will reflect itself in the life of the one who believes by righteous living. We saw some of this last time we were here in our study of chapter 3, because John answers the question to three groups of people that had come to him to be baptized by him and to hear what John would say. And remember, he said in verse 8, listen, you cannot just come out here and assume that your activity uh, to be baptized, that your religious heritage or anything else is enough to be in the presence of God. There is repentance that must take place, and that repentance will show itself in fruit, fruit in your life. And so, of course, those who had come out, those who were believing, wanted to know, what exactly does that look like in my life? And they began to ask those questions in verses 11 through 14. And we saw through our study of that that there were three realities that, that at least we noticed here that John was bringing out with the people. And that was that a repentant heart is one that gives freely. As the people were asking, John said, Listen, you who have two tunics, share with him who has none, and you him who has, no, has food, do likewise, i.e. implying that it give your food. If you have food, give some of it to those who have none. So give freely. And then secondly, we saw it was those that work honestly, work honestly. Some of the tax gatherers who were baptized were saying, what do we do? And John said, don't extract more than you've been asked to extract. Don't take more than you were ordered to take, so work honestly. And some soldiers questioned him, and they too were saying, then what shall we do? And of course, John said to them, live contently. That's the idea. Uh, be content with what you have, be content with what you take, don't, don't force people to give you more, don't work in a dishonest way with them. And really, it all encapsulates exactly what we know as a Christian, the same thing that Jesus Christ said to those who would be saved, right? If one is going to come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So there is this self-denial reality. There is a, a dying to self that must happen, and all three of those really encapsulate that reality. John is just simply saying to all of them, you must die to self, you must die to self, you must die to self. True repentance is seen in that reality, in a dying to self. And so this is the message that John is preaching. This is why he was sent from God. He preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that repentance showed itself in a dying to self. 
Now we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day here in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. It says, now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the weed into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's just take a moment and pray and ask God to just allow these words to speak where they must in our hearts. Father, we are glad that we are here. We're thankful that we can open Your Word together, that we can be challenged by it, be convicted by it, to be motivated in our hearts in obedience to it to be shown the reality of your character and nature and what you require of men and your righteousness and your glory. That we might see ourselves clearly in your eyes. We might know what our relationship with you must be like because of who you are. So Lord, take these words now as you have spoken them through your prophet. Allow them to be penetrating in our own heart and life. We might live like your Son, Jesus Christ, in every way. All to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's an incredible thing to hear preaching that stirs the soul. Having come from a conference a few weeks back, I had the privilege to sit in the audience and hear many men preach the words of God. And while I am sure all of them preached according to the providential hand of God as God had ordained them to preach and the text that they were given to preach, one preacher was particularly riveting to my ears so that When he preached, and when he finished preaching, I don't know why I'm emotional about. I just I just sat there. I sat there thinking about all that he had said about our God. It was it, it was riveting preaching, and I was I was elevated in in my inner man. I was elevated about 
spiritual things. It, it was it was preaching that stirred the soul. As I was studying this passage this week, I I sat back in my the chair in my office and I began to wonder, I wonder if if that's what the people were experiencing when they heard John the Baptist preach. Certainly lives were changing. Certainly people were coming to Him. They were flocking out to see Him. Their lives were being affected by the Spirit of God through belief in what John was saying. And so the text says they began to wonder about Him. They were wondering in their hearts about John. There was a a great expectation about John. The word used there is dialogizomai. It's a a compound word that that speaks of their their internal wonder. There's There's a preposition before the preposition dia, which is on account of, or on account of John in their hearts there was there was their mind was sitting there dwelling upon all that John was saying, and not just upon what he was saying, but upon all things that that he was, and they began to wonder as to who he was. Is he the Christ? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Is he the one that that we are supposed to be looking to, is this the Christ? His preaching was so riveting to them. It was so moving to them. It was so changing to their hearts. So they began to see John as if he was this great person that they should be following. And rightly so. Rightly so, in some senses, remember Jesus' own words. Jesus will say to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 7, born of women, there is no one greater than John. Born of women, there is no one greater. And beloved, it is this that we must consider in our minds. As we think through this text this morning as I was even riveted in my own heart concerning the preaching that I heard from a few weeks ago. We must consider this in our minds as we hear Luke record for us that the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering about John in their hearts, whether he might be the Messiah. These were Jewish people. These were people who had been taught about the Messiah from the rabbis. 
In fact, some of the rabbis probably even led the way out to John. And while their expectations are clouded by the reality of the passage of time and the prophets of old and the Old Testament prophets who had said that a Messiah would come, time had passed and maybe they, they didn't understand all that was going on because of that and because of the limited information that they had They were still in expectation for the Messiah. Why? Why? Because they actually believed. They they believed, even as the Jewish people today would believe, even those who do not know our Savior, Jesus Christ, they believe that the Messiah is coming and that He will deliver them. That He will deliver them from whatever oppression they are under, whether it's earthly oppression or any kind of oppression that they are under, that He will bring, in fact, an earthly victory that God will not abandon them. They believe that. And while they knew some things to expect as they're out there with John, they didn't know the Messiah's name. They didn't know that He would be named Jesus. They didn't know what town he was to live in when he was with them. They knew that he would be from the line of David. They, they knew what Isaiah said. They, they knew the, the prophecies whereby he would come from Bethlehem. They knew that, but that didn't explain where he might live. And so in one sense, it's quite obvious that they would wonder about John. He was a powerful preacher. He was one who drew them back to God. And the fact that that John was such a powerful preacher and that everyone was going out to hear him, that would only raise the suspicion all the more. After all, everyone's going. Everyone's going to see Him. Everyone thinks John is something. And so John responds to their suspicions. Notice, not by highlighting his own ministry, but he points to the ministry of the Messiah And he does it through comparing the difference between he and Christ. And he offers three comparisons. And I just want to walk through these this morning and maybe we can get a glimpse of our Savior that maybe we have not noticed before. John says here, there is one coming who is mightier than I, He's mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. There is one coming who is mightier than I. That is simply to say there is a difference between me and the Messiah, and it's a difference of superiority. There is a difference in superiority. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Pastor, wait a minute. You skipped an entire phrase here. 
Normally you don't do that. Why would you do that? I'm getting a little confused. Maybe I'm shaking a bit here because we need to deal with that. We're going to deal with that. Don't shake. Just sit. We're going to get there. But I want to deal with this phrase first. The people are wondering if John is the Messiah. And John says, compare who is more superior. Compare who is greater. My position is so ungreat that it is even lower than the lowest of slaves. Reminds us of the words that we quote often from some from time to time in our own Christian lives. He must increase and I must decrease. This is John's reality. John says, I'm even lower than the lowest slaves. He points to an example that every Jew would understand. I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. The ancient Near East teachers were to be looked at with the utmost respect by those who followed them. So much so, in fact, that those who were their followers would act as their teachers' slaves. Their indentured servants, those who were there to only care for every need and every detail of the life of those whom they followed. And the lowest of slaves were those who were tasked with taking the shoes off those who would be traveling with the teacher, guests who would come with the teacher to the teacher's home, and otherwise they would remove the sandals and they would take care of the feet of the travelers. That was the lowest of slaves, hence the reality that Jesus takes that illustration to its highest degree when he's with his disciples in the upper room and takes the towel and begins to wash their feet. The lowest of slaves was the slave that spent time doing that. But even for a Jew, in the mind and eyes and teaching and hearing of the Jew, for a Jew, that task was even below the lowest of Jews. In fact, one rabbi during the time said that disciples ought to do everything for their masters that a slave does except untie his sandals. For a Jew, that was a task that even they would not do. And yet here is John, the people so enamored with who he is, so enamored with his teaching, so enamored with his ministry, so enamored with him, so enamored like so many today who are enamored in our world with this celebrity Christianity that we seem to have going on in our world today where we're so enamored with somebody, we don't know them at all. Surely they're godly people. We're not questioning that, but we don't know them. We're so enamored with them that we seem to be following them. John says, don't do that. John says, don't follow me. There's one coming after me who's far more superior than anything I'd ever do. In fact, I'm not even fit to untie the thong of his sandals. I'm even lower than the lowest place that any of you would think we ought to go. 
John says, this is how significant I am and how significant he is. Not only am I not the Messiah, not only am I not the Christ, I am lower than his slave. Think about it. Think about it. This is John. This is John the Baptist. This is the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. This is the one who had received the Word of God directly. This is the one who is the greatest of all men as prophets on the earth. If John isn't fit to untie and care for the sandals which only the feet of our Savior have touched, then how great is the Savior? greater than any of us. John says, you may think I'm mighty. You may think I have some kind of inherent power in me to change lives, but He is greater. In fact, there is one far greater. In fact, there is no one greater than He You see, and this comes on the heels of the reality of what true repentance is, isn't it, right? True repentance is reflected in this reality to deny self. Why? Because true repentance believes in the only true Messiah, Jesus Christ. True repentance recognizes who Jesus Christ is. In all irony, this is what John is intimating and implying here when he says that the people are expecting Messiah and he's saying, you've come out, you've been baptized, repentance is reflected in your life. Well, here's, here's what repentance is reflected like. You follow the true Messiah. You follow the true Messiah. There is no one greater than the Savior. Like the Apostle Luke will say, Luke will say in Acts, for there is no other name among men by which we must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. There is no other name greater than Jesus Christ. He is the superior. John says, you may think I'm superior, but he is far more superior. He is far greater than I. Which points then to the second comparison that he makes. John says, secondly, not only is he far superior than I am, but there is a significant difference in our work. There is a significant difference in our work. Verse 16 again. As for me, I baptize you with water, Jump down. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Not only is there a significant difference in our superiority, I have no superiority. I'm lower than the lowest of slaves. I'm just an instrument in the hands of God. I'm doing what God has asked me to do. He's far more superior than I am. I can't even, can't even do the lowest of things for him as a teacher. And his work is far more superior than mine. 
When you look at it, the difference is quite clear to us when we think it through. John's baptism was with water. It was an external baptism. It was a baptism on the outside. It was a water baptism. And yet Jesus, or the Messiah's baptism, is one that is internal. It is an inside baptism. I don't... I don't want us to be confused here because on the surface, as you read this, you may begin to think that John is saying in his words about the Holy Spirit and fire that he's talking about judgment in that verse, in that passage there. But John is not speaking about judgment in verse 16 when the word fire is used. He's not He's not intimating or implying judgment there in the judgment sense of eternal judgment. For sure, there is judgment spoken of in this section of Scripture. He doesn't get to address that or doesn't address that until verse 17, however. There is judgment in verse 17, but the fire that is being mentioned in verse 16 is a fire of a purifying effect. It is a purifying fire. And in some sense, we could even say that the fire equated with God's judgment has a purifying effect, does it not? It it separates, just like we saw in Psalm 1. There's a separation that takes place at the fiery hand of God's judgment. But that is not what John is implying here in verse 16. Here... John is speaking of its purifying effect in sanctification. Baptism, an internal baptism. In other words, water baptism can only deal an effect with the outside. That's all it can do. It's the outward symbol of what has taken place on the inside through the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit and the fire cleanses the inside. You say, well, why do you say that of this phrase? Why, why are you saying that here? I'll tell you this, because the grammar in the original language there couples those two words, spirit and fire, with one preposition. They're all part of one prepositional phrase, which makes it clear that every true believer is cleansed by the Spirit and fire together. So he's talking about true repentance here, true belief. Baptism by God as He changes you on the inside. And I want to kind of show us this so that we are not confused. Turn over for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Of course, Paul dealing with the Corinthian church and all the goofiness that was going on there through their own disobedience. And he gets to the issue of spiritual gifts. Talking about the use of spiritual gifts how we're all together in the body. 
Verse 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. He, he's, he's having them think about this whole idea of unity in the church through use of giftedness by means of the, the way that, that God orchestrates it to bring everybody together in their usefulness into one body, and that's the body of Christ. And he says, in, ex- in explaining that, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So here you have a description by the Apostle Paul of a believer being brought into immersed, that's the idea, baptized, brought into, immersed, if you will, into the body of Christ. We know what the body of Christ is, right? What he's talking about here in an overall sense is the universal body of Christ. Every believer is part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is manifested, is seen through the local church, through the body of Christ that that meets in all kinds of locations around the globe. Every true Christian church is manifest the body of Christ. And Paul says, nobody's left out. We were all, he says. We were all made to drink of one spirit, he says. So so if we have repented, if we truly believed upon Jesus Christ and our sins are forgiven in Christ, right? We believed upon Jesus Christ as our Savior. Then you have been baptized into the body of Christ. You are part of the body of Christ. There's a unification that has taken place with us as believers. We are unified with Christ, and therefore we are in the body of Christ, and therefore we are together. We are one body. That happened to me when I was 24 years old. I believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as I sat on the floor of my brother's living room one New Year's Eve night, truly saved, repenting of my sins, and God ushered me in, although I didn't feel anything, I was ushered into the body of Christ. Each one of us who are saved, we, we know that in that faith moment, in that moment in which God saved us, the Holy Spirit was accomplishing various things with us. The Holy Spirit was doing things with us in order that we mar- were brought into the body. The first thing He was doing, he, he regenerated us. He made us alive with Christ. He made us alive. We are born again by the power of the Spirit of God. We do not regenerate ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no ability in our deadness and in our sins to regenerate ourselves, to make ourselves alive. The Holy Spirit does that. That's why we believe. So we are like a child We're physically born, and we begin to breathe the air of life when we come out. And we are born. As believers, we are born of the Spirit. And when the Spirit regenerates us, we begin to believe. We breathe life, spiritual air. 
But secondly, the Holy Spirit in that very moment indwells us. Not only does He regenerate us, making us alive, we express faith in Jesus Christ, He indwells us. Jesus promised that would happen. Jesus said in John 14 that once He went away, the Holy Spirit would be sent. The Helper would come to us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who would dwell in us. And so upon believing, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and He leads us in all truth. We have understanding that we never had before. We, we read the Scriptures and we go, man, I, this stuff was all confusing to me before. Now, now I, 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 I see. I, I, don't, I don't understand everything, but boy, I'm, I'm growing in my understanding as it's opened up to me by the Spirit of God and by the explanation that the Spirit uses through others. And the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He indwells us, but He also seals us. He seals us for the day of final redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 say this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Think about that. Think about the security in that, the assurance in that. Think about what that is for us. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Therefore, for us to not have the inheritance in Christ, the Holy Spirit has to cease to exist. And for the Holy Spirit to cease to exist, God the Father must cease to exist. God the Son must cease to exist. The Trinity must cease to exist. And so the Spirit's seal upon us not only assures us of an inheritance with God, but it also confirms our eternal protection and security in the hand of God. Because the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, that also means that we can never lose our salvation. Impossible. So the Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit seals us for the final day of redemption. Fourth, the Holy Spirit illumines us. He illumines us about truth and about sin. Right, The day that I was saved, I began to truly understand what the Scriptures meant by what they said. And I began to see the sin of my own heart more clearly and more and more evident in the way I lived, the way I talked, the way I saw things. So that the day that I was saved, the Holy Spirit began a purifying work in my life. The day you were saved, the Holy Spirit began a purifying work in your life so that the sinful patterns of life began to be worked on, chiseled off, shaved off, sanded away through obedience and submission by you to the things of the Word as you were empowered by the Spirit to walk in His Word. His refining fire was burning away the dross of the impurities of sin in your life so that you were becoming more and more like Christ.
This is what John is saying in Luke chapter 3. I, I can never do that. I can't make that happen. I can't affect that in your life in any kind of way. I can't do anything. All I can do is help you see the reality of all that's taking place by the Holy Spirit in your inner man through this outer activity that God requires for every obedient believer. The Holy Spirit will not stop. The Holy Spirit does not stop doing His refining work in our life each and every day. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will what? Complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will not stop. He is relentless. The Holy Spirit will not let a day go by in which He is not stoking the purifying fire inside of you that he might clean out from each and every one of us every vestige of sinful patterns in our life so that the face and joy and and life of the Messiah reflects in our life each and every moment of every day. So all true believers are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And he continues to do that work until we are with Christ. So fire here in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16 represents the Spirit's ongoing work, purifying us. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit continues to work in us the blazing reality of His purifying fire that works in our hearts day in and day out until we're like Christ. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit at a smelter and purify silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. John came to preach that message. John says to the people, listen, you're wondering about me. You're wondering whether I'm great. You're wondering whether my preaching is the thing you ought to really stand there and follow and and be enamored by me. He said, don't be enamored by me. True repentance is never enamored by the man. True repentance is always enamored by the Savior. He is superior to me. He is more significant than me. He's superior in who he is, and he is superior in what he does. Water is only external. The Spirit makes all things new internally. The Spirit regenerates you. The Spirit indwells you. The Spirit seals you. The Spirit illumines and convicts you. Then John says, thirdly, 
He is superior because he has a superior outcome. The outcome is far more superior. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There are two purposes for why the Messiah is to come, beloved. One is redemption, the other is judgment. Christ came the first time to redeem, and through Him all who believe in Jesus Christ are redeemed unto eternity, and Christ will come again and is coming again, and He will come to judge. Christ redeems and Christ judges. John says, listen, there is going to be a great separation that will take place. I was listening to someone recently preach about this, and they, they, they explained the separation this way. They said, some will be barned and some will be burned. I like that. Some will be barned and some will be burned. The true believer here, metaphorically speaking in John's reference, is the wheat. He will gather the wheat into his barn. The believers are barned. We gather by Christ into the barn, into the place of God. The chaff are burned. Chaff, unbeliever, the rejecter of Jesus Christ. So John gives the people who are following him, the people who are enamored in him, the people who are wondering in their hearts whether he might be the Christ, he gives them a picture of the great harvest of God. The grain is removed from the stock. It's brought into the threshing floor, possibly to be crushed under the wheel that was trotted around by the oxen. And then the harvester would come in. Here, Jesus Christ. Here's the Messiah. He comes in with His winnowing fork in His hand, Something like a pitchfork. He tosses up the grain and the chaff into the air. The wind blows the chaff out. The heavier grain falls to the ground. It's gathered and it's brought into the barn. Useful to the master. The chaff gathered up and burned. Burned. It's a rather frightening picture actually. John is differentiating for the people. Listen, you're in one group or the other. There is no middle ground. You're either wheat or you are chaff. There are not someone in the middle. And God is the one who knows everything. God is the one who has perfect discernment. He is the one who is executing His plan with perfection. There isn't one sliding by. He knows every heart. His discernment is perfect. And therefore, His judgment is ultimate. This is God's judgment. This is not anybody else's. You notice, John says, He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable 
fire. I don't know about you, but I've never seen an unquenchable fire. There isn't a fire on earth that's unquenchable. The word here is an interesting word. It's a word we all know. The, the original word is asbestos. Asbestos. Asbestos is a fire retardant. We know it today because people have had cancer caused by it, by covering up pipes and older buildings and all kinds of things. But when I was in the military, I used to carry around a large machine gun in which you had to change the barrel out from time to time because once you shot so many rounds through it, the barrel would start to get very hot and could melt. And so you had to change that barrel out in the midst of a firefight or something like that. And they gave you an asbestos glove in order to take it off because you would be protected from the heat of the fire. And yet here, John says it's an unquenchable fire. It's, a, it's an asbestos fire. The idea here is that it's a fire that never goes out, and while the chaff is in the fire, the chaff is never consumed. It's never fully outside of the fire. It's never fully one that gets to, to be annihilated. There is no annihilation taking place here. It is an unquenchable fire, meaning that it is an eternal, never-ending fire. A fire that is never quenched. It is always hot. It is always burning. And therefore, that which is in it is never fully annihilated. Listen, beloved, make no mistake about it. A lot of people want to deny hell. They want to deny the judgment of God. But the reality is, even in these simple words, the divine judgment is as eternal as divine salvation. It's as eternal as divine salvation. Like just listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus himself speaking about judgment said the son of man, verse 31, comes in his glory and all his angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink." I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, 
accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they themselves will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison or did not take care of you? And then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Divine judgment is as eternal as divine salvation. Why? Because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. Only those who repent of their sins, receiving Jesus Christ and thereby being forgiven of their sins, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the Holy Spirit that they might believe in Jesus Christ and thereby understand what God says, and be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, will be with Christ forever. Only those who believe are saved. The rest endure the fires of judgment forever. John says, you think I'm great? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Jesus Christ is much greater than anything I could tell you or show you. He is far beyond anything, far above everything. He is greater in every way. Apostle Peter said to the believers he was writing to, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. People will come and they will say, ah, you're all wet. That's a bunch of nonsense. Follow after their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of His coming? Where's the promise ever since the fathers fell asleep? All continues just as it's been from the beginning of creation. Listen, everything goes on. Evolution is what's happening here. Just going on and on and on, just like it has been from the start. And they maintain this, it escapes their notice. But by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by, the, by His Word, they are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction, not of believers, but of ungodly men. Ungodly men. They do... Don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. 
And with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. He's not slow about his promise. The Lord doesn't wish any of those whom he loves and whom he's chosen to perish. He will not bring judgment upon those whom he loves, those who are in Christ. He wants them to repent. He wants them to continually be repenting in their hearts because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of the Messiah. God says, I I just came to do my job. I just came to do what God had asked me to do. Don't follow me. Follow Christ. Well, the response to John's preaching about Christ was mixed. Some followed, some didn't. Even though, even though it was good news. It was all good news. It was all God's message. It was all the gospel. The question we need to ask is, what is our response? True repentance embraces Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing your word to be heard today. Thank you that through the imperfections of even our humanity, your word goes forth with power, accomplishes all that you set forth for it to do. Lord, it is our prayer that Surely there are those among us who do not know Jesus Christ who sit here right now, this day, still under your wrath. Still deserving your wrath because they have not repented. They have not embraced Jesus Christ by faith. They are unwilling. They are rejectors. We pray, Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, the means of your Spirit, you would affect their hearts even now that they would turn to Christ. They would flee their sin, run to Christ, knowing that you will forgive them. You will change them. And then you will begin that glorious work, changing them into the likeness of your Son. Thank you for securing us in Christ who believe. Thank you for giving us a hope of glory. May that be a weight upon our hearts to motivate us and move us to share this great truth with others. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.